Amen. Galatians 6 and verse 14 reads, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Let's bow just for a moment of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come unto thee, and this note of praise that has come out from our mouths also sounds in our hearts for many of us, Lord, who truly have experienced the joy and a peace when we saw there at the cross our blessed Savior who suffered and who died for us and who would cover all of our sins with his blood if only we would trust in him. Oh Lord, we thank you that it was at the cross that we first saw the light, the light of the glorious gospel of God shined into our darkened hearts. And Lord, we were made new creatures. We were given reason to have hope, a hope that will never die, a hope that will always endure. Lord, we were made new creatures. We were separated from this world, the bondage of sin, the grip of Satan. And we were caused to love God and to love God's word and to love the people of God. And Lord, we pray that as we consider this verse this morning, that the cross of Christ would once again be that source of light to us, that the light of God would shine into our hearts today. And for those of us who perhaps are weary and things are somewhat dim, we pray, Lord, that we would be brightened up today by considering the cross, that we would be cheered, that we would be encouraged, that we would be led on in our walk with God, that we would be led on in our separation from sin, that we would continue to leave it, to put it to death. Lord, that we would come and to love thee more. We pray that you would answer these prayers, for we ask them in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If, like me, you rarely write letters anymore, compared to perhaps how you would have done in times past before, and yes, I am old enough to have lived before email and mobile phones, unfortunately, then you might realize that when you don't write letters, you lose the opportunity to communicate in a very meaningful way. You are less likely to pour out your thoughts in a text message or even perhaps in an email in the way that you would if you sat down and with your own hand wrote down what you were thinking. There's something special about it. You say in letters things that would seem perhaps a little devalued if you just dashed them off as yet another WhatsApp message. Maybe not, but I think that's generally true. Because in letters, we focus more, we think more carefully about what we want to say, and we take more time to articulate our thoughts. Another consequence of not writing letters, as the lecturers in the Whitfield would tell you, is that the standard of handwriting goes downhill. And that's something that they have to struggle with. But Paul writes in Galatians 6 and verse 11, "'Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand.'" Interpretations of this vary somewhat, There is a minority view that that means that Paul wrote the letter in large characters because perhaps he had poor eyesight, but that is a minority view and not agreed with by most. Most people think that Paul means that the whole letter was large. The entire epistle to the Galatians was large, and he had written the whole thing with his own hand. And that would not have been his normal practice. In Romans and Corinthians, we see verses that tell us that Paul normally dictated his letters and someone wrote them down for him. And then perhaps he wrote a benediction or wrote his name at the end. But in this personal letter, which the Galatians would have received 
in Paul's personal handwriting, and therefore was a very special and a very meaningful thing. He had warned them in the first chapter about false teachers. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, you find him speaking about false teachers and saying in verse 9, As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. False teachers. And again, here at the close of the chapter, when he comes to wrap the whole thing up, he says in verse 12, of those who desire to make a fair show in the flesh. He is again dealing with the presence of false teachers in the church or the church's in Galatia, the province called Galatia. He points out that they were people who were merely concerned about religion in order to keep up appearances because, he says in verse 12, they desire to make a fair show in the flesh. They were worried about public reputation, but verse 13 teaches us that they weren't really pious. They weren't really loving God and obeying the law of God because it says, verse 13, for neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law. They only wanted to get the ethnic Gentiles, the people in Galatia who took the name of Jesus Christ and called themselves Christians, they only wanted to get them to be circumcised in order to have them swell the numbers of those who identified with the ethnic Jews, those who ticked the outward boxes and had the right appearance of religion. That's all they were concerned with. So Paul makes a statement of great contrast then in verse 14, making it clear that he wanted nothing to do with these people. He has the word but at the start of the verse, which obviously puts distance between him and these false teachers. And he says, contrary to these people who wanted to glory in the outward appearance, but God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not that Paul wanted to glory in the physical object of the, of the cross. He wasn't glorying in pieces of wood. He was glorying in the cross work, in the person who hung on the cross, and in what was achieved there. He said I, that he would only glory or he would only boast about Jesus Christ as the only redeemer of God's elect, the only mediator between God and men and what he did on the cross. This morning, as we consider glorying in the cross of Christ, I want you to see, first of all, that an exception was made for the cross. And we've already considered that exception because it's found in the first phrase, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross. Paul makes an exception for the cross. And when Christians read this verse, it would be helpful for us, and certainly was helpful for me, to remember who Paul was to learn a little bit about him and perhaps refresh our memories about this unique man. He was no ordinary person. And I can say that because he had a distinguished ancestry. He gives his autobiography in a brief form in Philippians chapter 3. And he says in Philippians 3 and verse 5, he talks about his upbringing. He said that he was of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews. And that phrase where he says in Hebrew of the Hebrews simply means that he was ethnically pure. He was Jewish on both, both his father's and his mother's side. Because in this day and age in which, he wrote it, in which he wrote, it would have been common for Jews and Gentiles to have been married together since the Jews had been scattered from their homeland. But Paul had two Jewish parents, and he could trace his lineage right into the tribe of Benjamin back generations. He was of the stock of Israel. This man had a distinguished ancestry. He took great pride in where he came from. 
Not only that, but he also had an excellent education. The Bible tells us that before his conversion, when he was still called Saul, he's described as Saul of Tarsus. That was the place of his birth. And Tarsus was a city that was renowned as a place where you received excellent education. In the ancient world, Athens and Alexandria were held up as places of great learning, and Tarsus was grouped along with them. And so Paul, being born in the city of Tarsus, would have been would have been receiving, as a young man, a very good education. And not only that, but because of his Jewish lineage, he was sent from Tarsus, from that Greek province, to Jerusalem. And we read about that in the book of Acts. We learn that Paul was taught by a man called Gamaliel. And that man, Gamaliel, is described in Acts chapter 5 and verse 34 as a doctor of the law, had in reputation by all the people. And this was Paul's teacher. One of the best. He had an excellent education. Not only did he have a distinguished ancestry and an excellent education, but he also behaved himself very well from a Jewish perspective. He conducted himself strictly according to Jewish customs. Paul, as a young man, was not a layabout. He was not a wild young man. He was very upright and very moral as far as the Jews were concerned. Philippians 3 verse 6, his autobiography goes on. He says of himself, as touching the law, a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were the strictest. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. And he's referring to the church of Jesus Christ. And as a Jew, that would have been something that was admired because the church of Jesus Christ were seen from a Jewish perspective as false worshippers, false teachers, apostates. And so Paul zealously persecuted the church of Jesus Christ And then he says, finally, Philippians 3, verse 6, as touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That's the law of Moses. And Paul is saying, there wasn't a Jew who could point out a fault in me. I kept all the Jewish laws and all the Jewish customs. So you see, Paul, who said that he would make an exception for the cross and he would glory only in the cross, was saying this as an exceptional person. He was no ordinary person. He has most of us beaten in terms of pedigree and education and behavior. But he goes on, his story goes on, and it gets much better than his days in the bondage of the Jewish religion and in self-righteousness, because Paul's story went on. He had an encounter, of course, with Christ on the Damascus Road when he was literally put in the dust and humbled, and he met Jesus, as Christ said to him that day, whom thou persecutest, and then he got saved. He was made a new creature, and he would then look back on his old life, his pedigree, his upbringing, his training, his very moral and very legalistic behavior, and said, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. He was now a Christian. And we know Paul was no ordinary Christian. He was no ordinary Christian because he was an apostle. He received that extraordinary call from God to be to to be the apostle to the Gentiles and to evangelize the Gentiles. He was a spiritual father to many converts. He was a church planter of thriving works. He was a contender for the faith before small, before ordinary people, and before kings and governors, great people. And he was also a person of great authority in the New Testament church who wrote most of the books in our New Testament and who when necessary, would rebuke other spiritual giants like Peter. 
when it was done as necessary for the sake of the gospel. And all of these qualities, all of these achievements would present any of us with the temptation to be proud. If you were, if you had done what Paul has done, we would all struggle, I think, with the temptation to pride, to see ourselves as being something to be proud of, to just occasionally allow ourselves perhaps even from the pulpit, to remind others of what we've done and who who exactly we are. But Paul didn't do that. Paul said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross. There's the exception. The one exception. When he says, God forbid, in the original Greek language, it could be translated as, far be it from me. Or, let it not happen to me that I should glory. And the word glory, as I think I've said already, could be translated as boast or rejoice. God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross. Paul is reminding us of a principle that he has mentioned in some of his other epistles, because in the letter to the Corinthians, in the first and the second letters, he said, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Now, if Paul made an exception in his life that he would boast about nothing, glory in nothing except the cross of Jesus Christ, then we should be doing the same. In every context, in every social environment, church, home, work, friends. Why should we be any different? We should be like Paul. That in our lives there should be this general rule that we would not glory in anything except the cross. He that glorieth, Let him glory in the Lord. And we all fight with the tendency to boast in ourselves, to be proud, to to glory in ourselves and who we are and what we've done. It might be that we glory in our accomplishments and in doing so we would forget that the life and the energy we've been given to achieve these things has only come from God. We might glory in our ability and our talents And in doing so, forget that God gave us that intellect. God gave us that ability. And that our purpose in life, our whole reason for being here, for existing, is to glorify him, not ourselves. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 5, Yet of myself I will not glory. And then in this verse, he gives us the exception to that rule. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me remind you of the hymn that I think we probably all have sung at times. And the core, uh, one of the verses says, Boasting excluded, pride I abase. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. But it's very hard to say that and it really, really be true. Boasting excluded. That means boasting is not there. You won't find boasting in my life. That's a high standard, but that was Paul's standard. That's the standard of the word of God for me and for you. That there is an exception made for the cross and only the cross. Galatians 6.14, we also see that an exhibition was made at the cross. Because Paul identifies it clearly, of course, there's, there's no other cross it could be. It's the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Scripture, whenever the cross is mentioned, you, in the New Testament, if you um, search for that word in the New Testament, you'll find that it's first used in Matthew's Gospel, and it's used by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's the second time he uses the word is Matthew 16 and verse 24. 
If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This statement was given to the disciples and to some other people who were listening just a little while after Christ had told his disciples what was coming. Because Matthew 16, 21 says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. He was telling them about the cross. And then just a few verses later, he applies it to anyone who would really follow him. And if you identify as a Christian today, that's you. Christ says, if you would follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This phrase, take up his cross, would have been understood by Jewish people because of the Roman army and the Roman government that were in control in the region at the time. Crucifixion was a Roman method of execution, not Jewish. It involved the body being nailed to a wooden cross and suspended from it. And Paul refers to the idea of a cross in Galatians 3, but there he calls it a tree. And the reason he uses the word tree is because in Deuteronomy, the Jewish laws stated that though the Jews were not permitted to kill people by crucifixion, they could display the body of a deceased person on a tree because that person had done something particularly shameful. This was a very graphic thing. It was the kind of thing that doesn't happen now in in our society uh, compared to biblical circumstances and some other countries in the world. We live in a very sanitized society. There are probably better words to use, but you know what I'm trying to say. You wouldn't see this happening now. But the Jews were permitted to hang a person's dead body on a tree in order to send a message to everyone else that what this person had done was truly shameful. But they weren't allowed to let it hang overnight. They had to take it down. And of course, that's what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ's body. But Paul said in Galatians 3, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. But now, when Christ spoke to his disciples in, in, in his era, under Roman rule, crucifixion was a commonly seen method of execution. And the Jews, the disciples, would have understood what was involved. They would have understood that the person sentenced to crucifixion was often required by the Romans to physically carry the cross on which he or she would hang and take it to the site where they would be crucified. Though crucifixion, however, was common, this cross is anything but common. Paul is speaking about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was not the cross of a common criminal, although it appeared to some people to be that. Isaiah tells us he was numbered with transgressors. He was just put up there beside and between two thieves. But it was not a common cross. It was not a common occurrence. It was absolutely unique because on that specific cross, there was a great exhibition And while Paul, we don't know if he was there in person, he certainly heard about it. And while he may not have seen it with his own eyes, he saw Calvary. He saw the cross of Jesus Christ with the eyes of faith. He took time to survey the wondrous cross. And we as fallen men and women suffer because we do not know God, but God has revealed himself most powerfully at the cross. Consider with me exactly what is exhibited, what is shown at the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, 
we see the grace of God. We see God's grace because we see favor shown to those who deserve wrath. We see grace because at the cross, sinners who are by birth, by, birth, by sin, naturally separated from God, are shown a way of salvation. We are shown God's one way of salvation. And as we sang earlier, it was at the cross that we first saw the light. It wasn't in the name of a church. It wasn't in the finest Christian that we personally knew. It was at the cross where everything changed and where the work was completed. The work of redemption. The cross exhibits the grace of God. It also exhibits God's holiness and God's justice. At the cross, we are seeing God's hatred of sin because he is perfectly holy acted out. A hatred of sin that is infinite because God is infinitely holy. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a little book on the cross, which is a very good read, not a difficult read. In that book, he says, God is the eternal antithesis to sin. God is inherently opposed to sin in a way that we right now can't understand. 1 John 1 and verse 5 gives us a little better understanding because it says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There's a picture we are all able to grasp that God is pure light. In him is no darkness at all, and therefore God must punish sin. And we see punishment of sin at Calvary. The cross exhibits that to us very, very plainly. And we also therefore see God's justice. The Holy One cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And sin, as rebellion against him, as transgression of his law, will be punished. The Bible tells us that God will render to every man according to his deeds. And you might ask, if that is true... I have sinned. Does that mean God is going to punish me for my sin? Well, praise God. If you're in Christ, no. Because the cross also exhibits God's wisdom. Because at the cross we see God providing a solution to the problem that guilty sinners have. The wrath that hangs over them. The message of the cross is the power of God. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1. Because at the cross... God's wisdom made it possible for God to remain perfectly holy and at the same time forgive guilty sinners. And he didn't slide the sin under the rug. He didn't brush it under the carpet. He didn't turn a blind eye to any sin, not even the smallest, quickest thought. Every sin will be punished. But at the cross, mercy and truth met together because Jesus Christ took all of the punishment for all of the sins of all of his people. All of my sin was laid on him. Christian, all of your sin was laid on him there. He bore it. He paid for it. He suffered for it. To a depth that we can't understand. It was the suffering of an infinite person because the Lord Jesus Christ is both God and man. It's a mystery to us that the immortal would die. But at the cross, God's wisdom is exhibited because God provided a way where without him, without his plan, there would have been no way. Jesus Christ is that way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And because God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, 
I see, fourthly, in the cross, there's an exhibition of God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. It was the love of God that sent Jesus Christ into this world to die for sinners. And therefore, the cross of Jesus Christ, surely you've been reminded this morning, should be the only thing that you glory in. Should be the only thing, Christian, that you or I would ever boast in because we know ourselves to be worthless, sinful, shameful, and the cause of a perfect Savior suffering in such agony on the cross. And we can never glory in ourselves. Everything good we have, everything everything commendable that we are, is by His grace. It's our only subject of glorying because of all that it displays, because it is the greatest exhibition of the attributes of God, His holiness and His justice, His wisdom and His love. We see it all there at the cross. And our purpose is to glorify Him. Now, notice with me thirdly, how this all applies in the Christian's life because an effect is made by the cross. An effect is made by the cross. Because to the non-Christian, the Bible makes it very clear, 1 Corinthians 1, the cross is an offense. It has the effect of offending people. It says, Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 1, that the cross was uh, to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to us which are called Christ the wisdom of God, Christ the power of God. To the Christian, to the believer in Jesus Christ, the cross has made a great effect upon us. And look with, the te- look with me at the text, please, till we see exactly what this effect is. Galatians 6, 14, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. This describes a spiritual reality. This describes how it is with you if you are truly a Christian. The world is crucified to you. Whatever is crucified is dead. So Paul is saying, and Christian, you can take this verse and read it personally and say, by whom, by the Lord Jesus Christ, the world is dead to me. And I to the world. Unlike the false teachers who were concerned with secular interests, with popularity and with reputation, above all else, and accommodated their religion to those things, Paul had become dead to the world. And Albert Barnes says, this is a temper of mind that all Christians should labor after. And the best way to attain it is to converse much with the cross of Christ, to spend much time glorying in the cross. The more we, have, the more we do that, the less we will think of ourselves. The more we think of our Savior and his sufferings there on the cross, the less likely we will be to indulge in sin and to gratify the lusts that still plague us. I want you to turn with me, please, to 1 John. There's an important verse here to bring home the reality of the effect of the cross and to challenge us as Christians. 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. We are commanded by John and by the Holy Spirit, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
Because you see, Paul, or rather John can say this so dogmatically because like Paul, he knows that the person who has trusted in Jesus Christ and has been saved by grace is dead to the world. And the world is dead to him or to her. And therefore they won't love the world. They won't. And that could be taken one step further to remind you and me this morning that we must not, we should not love the world. And if in our lives things have gotten to a stage where we can clearly identify that the world is taking far too much of our time and our affection and our, our energies and our desires, are, they're all being spent on things that ultimately are going to be burned up, then there's a problem. Then there's something we should repent of. John speaks in verse 15 of his first epistle, chapter 2, If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let me clarify that in this verse you will find, if you looked at it, that the verb is in a continuous tense. And John is saying if any man is habitually, continuously, without, uh, without exception, loving the world, well, clearly the love of the Father is not in him. The Christian As Peter said to the Lord Jesus Christ in John 21, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I love thee. Not long long before that, Peter had failed the Lord. He had denied the Lord and he had damaged his testimony. But he was still truly saved. And so John is speaking here of one who habitually loves the world. One who really does not love God at all. It could be a person who has the appearance of religion, who identifies with the local church, but a person who has no true love for God, who has never been saved. And there's a challenge there for those of you who are in that category. The world is not dead to you. It's what you really live for. And if that's the case, Christ is not your Savior. But he could be. You need to come to him. You need to trust him. And you can do that right now. Consider him as he hung on the cross. To bear away sin. And trust in that finished work. And your sins will be covered. Your sins will be washed away. Paul said in this text. Galatians 6.14. That the world was dead to him. And he to the world. He spoke similar words in Galatians 2 and verse 20, which is only a few pages before our text. Galatians 2:20 I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Paul is of course not saying that he had been crucified, but that as Christ was crucified and became dead, so Paul had become dead to the world and to sin to the love of money, to selfish ambition, to thinking that his keeping of the law could justify him before God. He knew now that that was not the case, and he was dead to all of those things. They had lost their power over him. The world was dead to him. And this is only true, this is only possible because, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Believer, we are united to Jesus Christ. We are not living this life on our own. We have not been 
given the book and given fellowship and sent off to do it on our own strength. Christ lives in me. Christ lives in you by his spirit. Paul says in Corinthians, we have the mind of Christ. What an amazing text. And we live this life by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We glory in the cross because of all of this. And one thought in closing that I trust will encourage you as it encouraged me, if I can possibly get it across to you. We glory in the cross because it is the cross. It is what happened there on that wooden tree surrounded by Roman soldiers and mocking Jews and multitudes who despised him. And none of his disciples because they all left. But it was because of what happened there that this world, which right now groans and travails under the effects of the curse and sin, will one day be renewed. And everything will be made perfect. And it is only because of what happened at the cross. That's it. It is because of the cross that we know that we will eventually be renewed and made perfect. We will be given new bodies. We will be like our Savior. We'll be without fault. We won't be struggling with sin anymore and with the effects of the curse, with illness and aches and pains and aging and disappointments. And the only reason that that is a possibility, in fact, a promised and expected and certain reality for me for every Christian is because of the cross. I can't say any more to make it clear to you who are not saved what you are missing and what you, ca- what you don't have. But I want to tell you again, just as we close, that it's offered freely to you right now. The Savior who hung on the cross can be your Savior today. You need only come and trust in Him and He will save you now. Let's just bow our heads and close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come unto thee. Our words can never do justice, and yet we will seek, Lord, as best we are able to glory in the cross. And so today we take time at the close of this service to come unto thee in prayer and to magnify our God, the one true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great God, the creator of all things, the sovereign of the universe, the Holy One who is high and lofty and inhabits eternity. And we give glory to Thee. We come and we confess our admiration, our adoration, our love, our worship for Thee, for Your blessed person, for all the perfection of Your attributes, for Your wisdom, for Your love, for Your holiness and justice, all these things that in ourselves would be so foreign to us that we would never possess, but that by grace we have been given, O Lord, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in the eyes of God, I am just as accepted as the Savior. And in the eyes of God, I will be with him for all of eternity. I am united to him. I can never be separated from his love by anything that I will experience in this world. Oh, Lord, I thank you for for the cross. I thank you for Calvary and for the love of Jesus. May we never cease to praise you for this love. May we 
never boast or glory in ourselves for we know better than the unsaved, better than those around us, just how unworthy we are. Just how sinful we are. Lord, perhaps we need to know it more in order to glorify you more. Lord, teach us that today as we think on the cross. Oh Lord, help us to be thankful. Help us to glorify you and to praise you. And Lord, we pray that you would take us to our homes and this afternoon on the Lord's Day that we would have a good time together with our families or with those whom we meet. We pray for the service this evening when we will consider your word again. We pray that the people of God would gather and that they would bring with them those who need to hear the words of life, those who are currently on their way to hell. We pray that a ministry would be exercised even this afternoon of invitation to the gospel and that God's God's name would be glorified. God's name would be magnified. We ask all of these things, giving thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.